0: this week on Q and A Yale University Law School professor Amy Chua Professor Chua discusses her book Political Tribes Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations Amy Chua author of Political Tribes Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations what can we learn from your analysis of Venezuela and Hugo Chavez.
1: Well, you might think of Venezuela as being almost the opposite of the United States, but it's actually pretty striking, the parallels between Chavez and uh, President Donald Trump and the rise of both men. So back in 1998, um, a little known man by the name of Hugo Chavez swept to power in Venezuela to the horror of the elites. They were horrified. He was a former ex-con, paratrooper, no political experience, spoke very lackadaisically, said crazy things, for example, that maybe capitalism had killed life on Mars. And yet he swept to power. And the elites, very much like the elites in this country, were completely stunned, taken aback, unprepared. So how did that happen? Here's the analysis in Venezuela for hundreds of years, the economy and actually the the politics had been controlled by a very small kind of European blooded lighter skinned elite who controlled the oil wealth, which is vast in Venezuela. They also controlled the media. And below that, most of the majority of the people in Venezuela actually didn't look like those people. They were darker skinned, had more Indian blood, uh, a lot of African ancestry because Venezuela had slaves. But yet those people were had no access to the wealth and they were completely shut out of politics. So for years, this went on. And suddenly, uh, because of democracy, when Hugo Chavez came in, he sort of played the race card, he actually said, whereas being darker-skinned and Indian-blooded was something bad before, he actually said, look, I look like you. I'm poor like you. I speak like you. These arrogant, snobby people, they don't care about you. And people voted him in. And that is very similar. Now, he is not, he's actually, um, our president, Donald Trump, is not the first Uh, of America's uh, first world leader to have had a reality TV show. Hugo Chavez is. And he actually had a reality TV show while he was president. He would go to a building um, because he was a big socialist. He nationalized everything. And with everybody watching, he would point to a certain building and say, expropriate it in Spanish. And people loved it. So flipping to the United States, it's actually quite similar, um, except for the obvious, which is, Donald Trump's base is exactly the opposite. It's largely white. And Donald Trump is also not a socialist. He is a billionaire. But you still have the exact same populist dynamic. That is, you have a group of um, people that are viewed, I guess you might call them coastal elites. I mean, they're not all coastal. You know, they, they live in cities, but and they're not all wealthy. But there are professors and journalists and bankers and lawyers who control or seen as controlling the levers of power, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood. And they're very multicultural and sort of um, liberal, usually, uh, not always, um, and very politically correct um, and very cosmopolitan. And you have all these people in The heartland in the South, in working class white communities, blue collar communities who have felt shut out and looked down and excluded. You're, you're racist. You're, you're not speaking the right way. You're sexist who just have felt powerless. And somehow Donald Trump was able to tap into those people. And it wasn't just economics. It was really the way they related to him culturally. He spoke like they do, you know, kind of casually, always getting in trouble, but they didn't mind that. They always got in trouble. Gorged himself on McDonald's, worldwide wrestling. So that's the parallel. Um, uh, a very charismatic, demagogic politician who actually um, targeted the outside. That is, they, he said, these people are exploiting you. They're controlling everything. Let's, let's take America back for you. Um, the real people who own it and that's exactly the message that Chavez said.
0: Let me ask you if there's a parallel here that on page 135 you say in that chapter on Venezuela, today Venezuela is practically a failed state.
1: Yes, so Venezuela is a country that had a market-dominant minority. This is again a small minority that controlled vastly disproportionate wealth. In these countries, democracy can often be very destabilizing because you have this powerful minority that wants to cling to its power, and then you have much larger, poor, often less educated, frustrated majority. And what I say in the book and explain is in this clash of the poorer numbers and uh, the wealthier minority the results are often deadly because people will fight, as I say, sometimes to the death of the country. Um, sometimes you'll see lurches towards authoritarianism, and you know, you're seeing a lot of that now. You see typically an erosion of trust in our institutions. Um, I hate to say it, but this is something that we are talking about a lot in the United States. You know, these institutions that used to be so revered are now, we don't trust them, we don't trust electoral outcomes. And this is critically important. It's what's made us special. Unlike developing countries, we always respect our elections as much as we hate the result. We, we don't have a coup. We don't overturn it. So there are some signs now that um, we need to be careful. We need to get back to who we are. But um, for the first time in our history, we are starting to have some dynamics that were historically more associated with developing countries.
0: In your book... You talk about Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And I want to show you a clip of some video of John Foster Dulles, who used to be Secretary of State in the United States. This goes way back to 1954, and have you comment on this. I saw everywhere that there were people who were frightened and worried at the evidence, either when they're in their own country or in very close proximity to it of aggressive Chinese Communist intentions. It would seem as though it was quite possible that the Chinese Communists are not content to stop until it is apparent that they are stopped by superior resistance. What's your reaction when you hear that from 1954?
1: Well. My reaction is really the thesis of the book, which is that the United States has been, we tend to think of our uh, foreign policy in terms of great ideological divides, capitalism versus communism, for example, as in the Vietnam War. And what we miss is we fail to see the importance of the group identities that actually matter most to people on the ground. So in Vietnam, the United States missed two things, and it's really the ethnic dimension. By now, I think most Americans realize that we missed the role of nationalism, that in a way what the Vietnamese people were fighting for was their freedom, their sovereignty. And, you know, communism was in there, but that was just uh, almost secondary to how much they wanted their freedom. But here's something that most Americans, even experts, still don't know today there was an ethnic angle. The United States made a terrible mistake assuming that Vietnam was just a pawn of Communist China. They just thought, you know what? The Chinese are gonna take over, the Vietnamese are right there. What they didn't realize is that Vietnam and China are mortal enemies. China colonized Vietnam for a thousand years. Every myth of the Vietnamese people, every hero is always fighting the big Chinese enemy. And remember, Vietnam's tiny. China's huge. It's like a giant 500 pound genie, uh, which is China sitting on the equivalent of a little lamp, which is Vietnam. So the idea that we, that. We missed the history. If we had looked at the history of long standing suspicion and distrust, we might have realized that Vietnam was not the pond of China. More importantly, we missed an inside element too. Inside Vietnam, Vietnam had what I call a market dominant minority. That is, historically, they had a tiny ethnic Chinese minority. And the Chinese are different from the Vietnamese. To a lot of us Americans, it oh same thing. Not the same thing for them. The Chinese minority came from when they originally colonized the country, but there were only about 1% of the population. Think about that, 1% is tiny. And yet historically, they controlled about 70 to 80% of the private economy, all the commerce, all the financing, all the middlemen networking. And when the French colonizers came in, they made the Chinese richer. They dealt with that little Chinese minority. So the point here is that the capitalists in Vietnam we were not even the Vietnamese people. They were all part of this hated outsider group. It would be like in America if the only, only rich people belonged to, they were all from, you know, another country, pick a country, China, Lebanon, and there were no, you know, ordinary Americans who were rich. That's how they felt. So here we come in the United States saying we're promoting capitalism. And we completely miss the idea. That these Vietnamese people are seeing that we're promoting policies that only help this Chinese minority. When we came in, they serviced our troops, they did all the financing, the black market, the prostitutes, they got richer and richer. The regimes that we put in were viewed as in cahoots with these corrupt Chinese businessmen. The Chinese were also, it wasn't just that they were wealthy, They stuck with their own. They were insular. They intermarried with their own. They spoke their own language. And they didn't even fight in the war. They dodged the draft. So from the point of view of the Vietnamese, America, we thought we were fighting for freedom. We couldn't understand why the Vietnamese wouldn't support us. And that's because we missed the most important group dynamics that were operating. It wasn't about communism versus capitalism. What the Vietnamese saw is, oh, these Americans want to help this tiny little group of greedy outsiders. There's nothing in it from us. And they're bombing our houses. Uh, Everybody we know is dying. Our sons and husbands are dying. So no wonder we didn't get that support.
0: The war was over in 73. We pulled out in 75. 20 years later in 1995 here is the former secretary of defense talking about the very thing that you're you're bringing up
1: we totally misjudged the threat we believed that vietnam as eisenhower said in 1954 was a domino and if the soviets and the chinese controlled it the rest of southeast asia would fall Cambodia, Laos, Malaysia, Indo- uh, the, Thailand, Indochina, and the, and maybe India, and that the, the, the Communist strength would be so increased that, the, that Western Europe would be in danger. Now that's what
0: we thought we were totally wrong. How could we have missed this?
1: First of all, I give him so much credit for acknowledging that. And the answer actually lies in both the best of America and the worst of America part of the reason that we're so blind to these ethnic divides and tribal divides is because we have had such exceptional success in our own country, and it's really true. We are special. You know, the idea is if Germans and Poles and Hungarians and Jews and Japanese could all become Americans within just one or two generations you know, why can't Sunnis and Shias and Kurds all become Iraqis? And oh, these people in Vietnam, if we just put in freedom, they'll come together. You know, who cares this little distinction between the Vietnamese and the Chinese? That's America at its best, contributing to our inability to see these, you know, kind of smaller, more primal identities. And then on the more negative side, I hate this term because it's overused, but part of it is this legacy of racism. I think for a lot of Americans, they couldn't see the difference between the Vietnamese and the Chinese because they all looked alike. You know, there are some quotes, um, "Oh, they're all gooks and slants. Um, and that's just something that we're all getting better at. Um, and, you know, I mean, to be fair, uh, there weren't very many Asians in this country back then, so they didn't know the difference. But But part of it is that we just didn't study the history of these countries. We didn't know how deep those divides were and they just all kind of looked oriental to us.
0: To catch up quickly uh, from the last interview, I'm senior since 2002. Your parents were born in China, moved to the Philippines, moved to the United States. You were born in Champaign, Illinois, spent some time in Indiana, and then went to Harvard?
1: Yes, I went to Harvard. And you
0: you got your law degree
1: Also Harvard Harvard. Law School.
0: And how long have you been teaching at Yale Law School?
1: Uh, Since 2002, right about the time that uh, my first book, World on Fire, came and when we first met. Our
0: world has changed so much since 2002. And here's another example. This is from 2003. And you write about this in your book. It's former president George W. Bush. There was a time when many said that the cultures of Japan and Germany were incapable of sta- sustaining democratic values. Well, they were wrong. Some say the same of Iraq today. They are mistaken.
1: So, uh, well he was right about Germany and Japan, but here's the problem. They were the wrong models for Iraq. Germany and Japan, after the Second World War, were about as ethnically homogeneous as you can get. I mean, Japan has always been homogeneous, almost 97% just ethnic Japanese. And Germany, because of the Holocaust, was also ethnically homogeneous. So it was a bad comparison. The better comparison, actually, for Iraq, sadly, is the former Yugoslavia. Like the former Yugoslavia, Iraq, when we went in, was a deeply divided country. There was the schism between the Shias and the Sunnis, but also the Kurds. And all of this had been bottled up, kind of held in check by Saddam Hussein, who just compressed everything. And Iraq, like Venezuela, like Vietnam, also had a market-dominant minority the roughly 15% Sunnis. So the Sunnis are the same group that Saddam Hussein belonged to. They had controlled that country politically, economically, militarily, for hundreds of years, first under the Ottomans, then under the British, who favored that Sunni minority, ruling through them indirectly, and then most egregiously under Saddam Hussein, who favored the Sunnis, And not just that, it wasn't just that he allowed the Sunnis to get wealthy, control the wealth. He persecuted the Kurds and the Shia majority. So once again, you have the same dynamic a long, dominant, hated minority. In this case, it's the Sunnis, a different sect. And then suddenly we're our idea. We come in the United States and we think democracy is the panacea. We don't pay any attention to the tribal divisions, the Sunnis or Shias. We just think if we just have elections, we're going to produce a wonderful free market democracy. Nothing like that happened. Instead, what happened is exactly what you would predict when you suddenly give majority rule to a country where the majority was so long suppressed. The Shias, whom we empowered, immediately used their votes to Revenge, to take revenge on the Sunnis, understandably, who had persecuted them from so long. There was suddenly the, uh, rising of demagogues, uh, fundamentalist leaders who said, we have to kill them, we need to pay back time, we have to anti-US. And in the end, the Sunnis all didn't want democracy because they saw their numbers were so small, so they resisted, and they went into Al-Qaeda. They went into what is now ISIS. They didn't want democracy because they saw it in the cards. And the Shias just implemented only pro-Shia policies. And so the result is not as we hoped that our invasion would produce this beacon of stability in the Middle East. Instead, we produced a situation where the country soon dissolved into really the brink of civil war. And it was like that for years and years and years. And um, we then produced ISIS, which I don't know if Americans realize is a Sunni movement. Uh, it's it's not just a fundamentalist movement that wants to unite um, a lot of uh, Islamists and fight the United States. They also want to exterminate the Shias.
0: Before Iraq in 2003, <clears throat> March was the invasion, was Afghanistan in 2001. And here is Big New Brzezinski, who was Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, in 1979,
1: we know of their deep belief in God. And we are confident that their struggle will succeed. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side.
0: Talking to the Mujahideen, but right next to him was Warren Christopher, who went on to be
1: uh,
0: yes. the Secretary of State.
1: So once again, we see the same pattern, which is we had the best of intentions. Uh, we were, we thought we were fighting communism. But once again, we thought in terms of these grand principles, and we were blind to the actual group dynamics that mattered. We actually armed the Taliban. We, it was our dollars, our guns, our weapons that gave rise to the Taliban. We thought that we were dealing with freedom fighters who were going to help our side, but we didn't realize that we were getting played by Pakistan, which is very Punjabi-dominated, and they wanted to radicalize the Pashtuns. The Pashtuns are the largest ethnic group in Afghanistan. We missed all of this. We didn't know what Pashtuns and Punjabis and Tajiks were. There were nobody um, in the State Department that even spoke those languages. We were just thinking about the Cold War. And because of this, we allowed Pakistan to play us. It gave rise to the Taliban. But what's interesting is even fast forwarding to today, right after 9-11, we sent troops in and we made the same mistake. Now we had a different lens. We weren't thinking about the Cold War anymore. Now we were thinking about the fight against terrorism. But we switched ideological lenses. We just divided the world into terrorists and, you know, democracy lovers, the United States. What we missed is that the Taliban is not just a fundamentalist religious movement. It is that, but it is also an ethnic movement. So, To back up a little bit, Afghanistan is full of different ethnic groups. And the biggest four include the Pashtuns, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Hazaras. And the Pashtuns were the ones that founded Afghanistan, and they dominated the country for hundreds of years. They were always dominant. In fact, some people think that Afghan and Pashtun are synonyms. But right around 9-11 and just before, The Pashtuns were fearing that their power was diminishing, that they were declining. They were under threat from the rival groups. We missed it all. We saw everything only against this axis of evil. We didn't know about these Tajiks and Uzbeks. And when we invaded, we allied ourselves with the Pashtuns' biggest, most hated enemies, the Uzbeks and the Tajiks. We were viewed as favoring them. We set up a government and we put them in key positions, not realizing that this was shooting ourselves in the foot, that we were never going to get, you know, a majority of the Afghan people on our side if it looked like we were favoring the other ethnic groups. So we missed that. And um, that's why we're still there. We've spent so much, so many lives lost. And even now, now there are several books, many excellent books called The Pashtun Problem, The Pashtun Dilemma. Unfortunately, it's about 15 years too late that we're now just realizing this.
0: You did something in the book I've never, personally never seen before, and that is you told us where the name Pakistan came from. P stands for Punjab, A for Afghan, referring to Pashtuns, and let's see what else, K for Kashmir, S for Sindh, and tan for Balochistan.
1: Yes, and that just shows, again, that Pakistan, we think of as a country, or maybe, you know, a sort of Islamist country, which, which it is, but Pakistan is made of all these different ethnic tribes. And each letter um, in the word Pakistan represents one of those tribes. And the P stands for the most powerful militarily, the Punjabis, and it's actually the A that stands for the Pashtuns. Um, so right there in the name, we should have studied this, are these deep ethnic identities that matter so much to people in that region that we were completely oblivious of.
0: Venezuela, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, just a part of your book. There's a lot more about the United States. And here is, just about a year ago, J.D. Vance, who, very successful book called Hillbilly Elegy, was here. Let's listen to what he had to say. What happened is that I had a professor... Her name was Amy Chua, and she is an an author of a a couple of pretty famous books. And she said, you know, J.D., this is a really interesting story. You're making some really interesting arguments. You you should think about publishing a book. I said, "Eh, yeah, whatever, I'll think about it, right? I'll just write it and just not worry about whether it's ever going to get published. And a few months later, I was still in law school. She connected me with some friends of hers in the publishing industry, and one thing led to another. (laughs) Excuse me, and I had a book deal. Why did you recognize his story as being significant
1: well i'm so proud of him you know it's funny as superficially it looks like we have nothing in common i'm a daughter of chinese immigrants my parents were graduate students he's from a poor appalachian family his mother was an addict but actually we have a lot in common we're both from the midwest we're both um we were sort of outsiders i grew up very um not exactly poor but we only went to a restaurant once a year um, my dad wore the same pair of shoes for eight years you know he, they were very very thrifty um immigrants without much and we were jd and i were always outsiders um never part of the elite um we talked about those eat all you can buffets <laughs> uh, but i recognized something in him something honest and pure um and he was very interested i guess and group identities like I am, because he was from this, I guess what some people call hillbillies or white trash. um, And he understood that community and loved that community. And that's a community that has paid a huge, uh, uh, made a huge impact in in the 2016 election.
0: How have you gotten to know the United States?
1: How have I gotten to know it? Yeah. Um, Living here, loving the country.
0: I mean, have you traveled a lot? Is it reading? What's...
1: I well first of all I grew up seven years in the Midwest and then I my father moved to Berkeley so I grew up I spent seven years in high school there so I saw a totally different part of the world it really feels like a different planet Indiana and California and then I moved to the East Coast where I went to school so but even somebody like me I still don't know all of America I mean I, I don't you know I don't Claim to be an expert on on parts of Appalachia. I I learned that from actually reading JD's book and talking to him when he was my student. I said, "Oh my gosh, I had no idea there was this much poverty and frustration and um, exclusion." And that's another reason I thought he had to write the book. There was such a, you know, we tend to think of um, uh, minorities uh, being disadvantaged, but there are almost fewer vi- poor working white. Uh, working class whites at a place like Yale Law School than there are minorities, actually.
0: You point out there are 75 million people in the United States that follow NASCAR. What does that mean?
1: Well, it means that America is very divided right now. And I think there's mutual snobbism and arrogance on both sides. And we, we really need to remember what makes us Americans. So right now there is a big divide. It's not just black and white. It's really not people focus on this. But actually, America's white majority is now divided. Um, loosely speaking, there are what you might call coastal elites. I mean, they're not all coastal. They also live in the cities, and they're not all wealthy. But they tend to be very multicultural and progressive and cosmopolitan. They've traveled around the world, maybe more than they've traveled in the United States. And they tend to not really know the people in the middle of the country. They tend to have a little bit of an arrogant attitude about NASCAR, you know, these flag waving bumpkins. They tend to use very harsh language, I think, without really knowing people as people. Like they are, oh, they're all racist or sexist because they don't talk in this kind of politically correct way that, you know, if you're on college campus, you learn how to speak. There's always a new vocabulary. It's changing all the time how can people how can ordinary americans possibly know what the right word is to use but if you say the wrong thing oh my gosh you're xenophobic you're racist you're misogynist you're you know uh you're anti-islam and so there's this great distrust and it runs in both directions there's nobody blameless uh, we have to all elevate ourselves a lot of the people in the middle of the country they think of these coastal whites as being so pro-minority Why do they like immigrants so much? Why are they always trying to help the poor in Africa? So they, you see dialogue like they don't love real Americans. They just want to help all these foreigners. Well, that's bad too. Who are real Americans? We're all real Americans. This is what's so special about America is that we are what I call in the book, we are a super group. We are alone among the major powers. The United Kingdom is not. France is not, and I defend this. Um, China?
0: So, you mean it's in China too?
1: China is absolutely not. Let me. Def- a supergroup is a country that has two characteristics. The first is a very strong, overarching national identity. So we are Americans. It's very strong. But the second requirement for a supergroup is it has to be a country where individual subgroup identities are allowed to flourish so that you can be Irish American, Libyan American, Croatian American, Japanese American, you know, I'm, you know, Chinese American, and yet intensely patriotic at the same time. That is so rare. So you mentioned China. China has one. But not the other it's got this really strong overarching chinese identity but it doesn't let its individual minorities flourish the uyghurs and the tibetans their cultures are very much suppressed yeah you can't even wear uh you know speak these languages Um, France is the same thing. Very strong French identity. But they're having a lot of problems with their Muslim communities because there was the burkini ban. They can't wear headscarves. They can't. uh, uh, One of the leaders actually said, you speak and eat and talk and dress like the French or you can't live in this country. So we're special. And I think we all need to get back to that without saying that half of the country who voted for the other side They're not the real Americans. We have to realize that, you know, our national identity is capacious enough. It's built in to our Constitution. We have a special Constitution where our national identity is not defined by any ethnic subgroup. It doesn't belong just to the Irish Americans or the, you know, German Americans. It's ethnically and religiously neutral. So we have to get back to that. I
0: want to show some video of a young woman who's in her uh, mid 20s at most names Tammy Lauren. And I want to ask you why you cited this in your book. This has been seen by 66 million people at a minimum.
1: Colin, I support the First Amendment. I support your right to freedom of speech and expression. Go for it, bud. It's this country, the country that you have so much disdain for that allows you the right to speak your mind. It protects your right to be a whiny, indulgent, attention-seeking crybaby. It also protects my right to shred you for it see the national anthem and our flag they are not symbols of black america white america brown america or purple america for that matter there are patriots of every race that have fought and died for this country and we honor the flag and sing the anthem as a reminder well she's very charismatic and there are parts of what she says that i think are right we we are an ethnically neutral country that's the best of america The thing about that clip that's dangerous is that without her realizing it, she is also sort of doing an us versus them. Um, She is kind of tapping into these fears that a lot of people legitimately have in parts of the country where they're, they're used to America being a country that for 200 years was economically and politically and culturally dominated by really European whites. That's just a fact. And right now, with the Browning of America, where whites are on the verge of losing their majority status, as I explained in the book, probably by 2044, uh, whites may no longer be a majority. And that is a very uh, anxiety-producing status. And I think we should acknowledge that without calling people racists and xenophobes. We should be able to talk about that economic anxiety. And so somebody like Tommy Laren is tapping into in, to that anxiety. And while she's right that America's, um, should be colorblind, I think she's actually getting people very upset uh, in the other direction against the minorities, against the people who won't stand. And in general, my book calls for overcoming political tribalism. We, we need to be able to talk to each other as Americans again and not just say, oh, you're the evil ones. You know, it used to be that people on the other side of the political divide were just people that we disagreed with. Now it's almost like the people who voted for the other candidate are immoral. They are enemies. They're not even real Americans anymore. And this, because I study really democracies around the world, places like Libya. I mean, Libya, what's the difference between Libya and the United States? Libya is a multi ethnic country, too. 140 different peoples. It's a failed state. It's disintegrated. Why? Because it doesn't have that overarching, strong Libyan identity, um, strong enough to hold the country together. It was really a colonial construction. But we do. This is what makes us special. Our national identity is different. It's again it's in our constitution so we all need to try to live up to the ideals in our constitution both sides both you know the the people who are little really anxious about all these minorities the changing color of america let's talk about it you're allowed to be anxious and the other side shouldn't just call them xenophobic but every um generation has seen a new round of immigrants And we were always suspicious. When the polls first came in, no, don't let the polls come in. Uh, Italians, oh no, those are going to be all criminals. You know, the Japanese Americans, no. But each time we've overcome that initial fear and xenophobia, each time we've become our better selves and we can't be the the missing link. We can't be the weak link.
0: You have two charts in the book that I wanna put on the screen. The first one is from 1960 and this shows US foreign born residents Starting with Italy at 1.2 million, 990,000 Germans, 953,000 Canadians, 833,000 members, people from the UK, and Poland 748,000. Just look at that for a minute and see how this changes as you put up in your book a chart from the year 2000, just 40 years later. Mexican 7.8 million, Chinese 1.3, Philippines 1.2, India a million and Cuba almost a million. Why'd you do why'd you put that in the book?
1: Well, first of all just because it's true, uh you know I feel like our Politics in this country are so divided that you just have people talking to themselves. You know, if you agree, it's like some people are just wildly pro immigration and they bash the other side. And then the other side is just very fearful of immigration and they bash the other side. But it is, in fact, true that the composition of our immigrants has changed. It used to be mostly from Europe. Now they are principally from Latin America, Asia, and other parts of the developing world. So there is a change. the Browning of America. Also, the numbers are much, much bigger, 7 million compared to 100,000. And this is something we need to talk about. Right now, its we're not getting anywhere. The, the tribalism that has taken over our politics is preventing us from having conversations that we need to have about immigration. We can't just have no rules for immigration. I am the child of immigrants. I've written books about how important immigration is for the strength of this country. And yet, of course, we need limits. We need rules. We need to have a debate about who can come in. What are the qualifications? That's Every country has that. And the tribalism that has paralyzed our country is making it impossible for us to talk to each other. People should be able to say, you know, I'm anxious. Are these numbers right? Is this the way it should be? Without instantly being called, you know, some terrible name, and yet on the other side, people shouldn't just immediately look at the skin color of who's coming in and saying, "Oh, we got to block those." I mean, actually look at these people as human beings, um, and open your hearts, and um, and you know, we, we need to get back to where we where, where we we've, we've been at our best.
0: Speaking of human beings, here are two human beings that you know well. uh, And this is a photograph that you've seen, I'm sure many times from 2011. These are your daughters, Sophia and Lulu. When you were here before, they were like 10 and six. How old are they now?
1: Oh, time flies. They're 25 and 22. Uh, I'm incredibly proud of them. They survived all my shenanigans. Um And uh, and I, I'm proud that they're thoughtful people, actually, always trying to bridge differences. Where are they now? My oldest daughter graduated from Harvard and is in her last year at Yale Law School. And she did ROTC at Harvard. So after working for um, uh, Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit next year, she will um, devote three years to the U.S. military. Which service? Um, Army. Uh, that, uh, I'm very proud of her. Um, my younger daughter is a senior at Harvard and she's my free spirit. She's very, very smart. And um, who knows what she's gonna do, um, but she's doing incredibly well. She's, a, she's kind of a, a, a social leader.
0: How did they survive your tiger mom book?
1: Well, I honestly didn't know how that was going to go. You know, uh, suddenly they're, they're teenagers and they're in the media. And I could not be more proud of them. I think this is the strength of family. Um, not just my children, but my own parents who are 82 and still going strong. Um, they supported me. They knew I was being misunderstood. Um, and they knew that really I was just championing in a funny way, American parenting values. You know, I mean, there's all this stuff about sleepovers and yes, we can have little differences, but it's about high expectations. Let's, you know, believe in our children, let's hold them up to a high standard, not just academically, but morally. So my children survived amazingly. Um, they also had a bunch of interviews and I did not know what they would say, <laughs> but they, um, if you, you know, if you find the clips, they were very generous to me, so I got lucky.
0: But what did you learn if you say people misunderstood you? Why did they misunderstand you?
1: Well, a lot of people um, feel comfortable talking about books without having read them. So the book is actually not a how-to guide. It's really about the change in my own mentality. I started off as a very strict parent with both kids, and I still am very proud of that. But my younger daughter was very, very different, and at 13, she rebelled. I don't want to play the violin. I don't like this math stuff. And one of the big lessons of the book is you have to pay attention to the individual personalities of your child. They're just different. American individualism. I had to learn it the hard way. At the same time, my younger sister got leukemia and had to have a bone marrow transplant. So if you read to the end of the book, you realize that it's actually a kind of much more thoughtful book about what is important in life. How can we raise our children to be, you know, yes, uh, excellent students if possible, but also citizens and caring people who have the right values um, you know, and, and, and know what matters. Um, my sister made it through, but it's actually the combination of her horrible illness and just the trauma in my my family um, watching that. I mean, she had very young kids at the time and my younger daughter rebelling that made me really rethink what's important in life. One of your daughters,
0: I don't remember which one, I read this in an article that she wrote, said that she really feared your husband, more than she feared you, and she didn't want to disappoint him. What was that all about?
1: Well, the the strange thing, if you read the book, a lot of people don't get the tone. Um, It's supposed to be a little tongue-in-cheek. I've always loved books with unreliable narrators, um, where the narrator is actually kind of a little bit of a character. And once you see that, you realize that the book is a little goofy. I mean, it's almost like a a circus. There were times when I was almost very immature as a mother. You know, I describe myself as huffing and puffing and steam coming out of my ears, and my younger daughter compares me to Lord Voldemort and Harry Potter. Um, but my husband wasn't so much about schoolwork and exams, but as the constitutional law professor, he was always um, kind of a big emphasis on. Serving your country and high moral standards um, and giving back to the community. So I think he was actually a little bit more judgmental and severe that way. And wonderful result. That's probably partly why my younger daughter decided to, um, to, to she wanted to serve in the military, the combination.
0: So after that, how much of your own politics do you reveal?
1: Well, I'm happy to reveal them. I'm an independent. Um, I. I don't fit in anywhere because I actually think that America's political parties now, as I try to describe in this book, Political Tribes, are all wacko. They're completely off. They, they don't make sense in a way. You know, you have these in the Republican Party, you have, um, you know, evangelicals and poor working class people with the neocon people who wanted to invade Iraq. It just it's, it's just sort of almost arbitrary. So for me, I just want to choose the leaders wherever who speak to me, who seem, well, like J.D. Vance, honest um, and maybe don't care what other people are saying. As an immigrant's daughter... I'm always going to be somebody that doesn't like victim blaming. Um that's just the way my parents raised me. Um take responsibility. Um don't blame others, always start with yourself. Um but as an immigrant's daughter, I'm always going to, you know, believe that that's part of the lifeblood of this country that uh, the people who came over in waves. Um I tend to always Um, not like people who scapegoat and target each other. I I feel like often these are opportunistic politicians who are just trying to get votes for themselves. And I actually don't think that most Americans, this is what I say in the last chapter, I don't think most Americans like all the shrill um, name calling that we see on cable news and social media, the, all the targeting. I think people are, are wary of it and, and really want to change. And I, I think there will be a change.
0: There's a new story that uh, we have from KVUE in Austin, Texas from 2017. And you write about this in your book. Let's watch this and you can come back and fill in the blanks. Despite many churches stance against it, Santa Morte is the fastest growing folk religion in the world. Jose Merla, a pastor with Buenos Nueves Christian Church, calls it witchcraft.
1: It is exactly what the Bible calls it, is witchcraft, and unfortunately is against God's word.
0: Her followers say anything they ask for, she returns. Santa Morte has become an icon for drug traffickers. They believe
1: she has a tolerance for dark deeds, a prayer keeps them protected, allowing them to be more bold. Yes, this is one of the most interesting parts of my book. I I spend a chapter showing that a lot of America's elites just uh, miss the group identities that matter most to people. So many people in America, especially lower income struggling Americans, want hope. And a lot of the progressives on college campuses, um, I mean, they're trying to do the right thing, but they are constantly trying to expose the American dream as a sham. And I understand where that comes from. You know, we have had a slowing in upward mobility. We do need to make the American dream real for more people. But they often sort of trash it and say, oh, uh, it's all hypocrisy. Our values are all hypocrisy. That clip shows that many, many poor um, Mexican-Americans who, um, you know, don't have jobs, they're not relating to all the stuff that they hear in Washington. It just seems like a bunch of elites God knows what they're doing in Washington. Um, and they just find their own groups that speak to them. And this is very sad. I mean, this the, this is the, the goddess of of death operating, uh, offering them hope, but sh- they pray. They pray so it's their God. 10 million people follow them. Yes, um, a huge number of Americans. And what they are hoping for is they are praying in some ways for prosperity and health. And the prosperity gospel in the United States, another huge movement that I discuss, most of the elites in New York and D.C. have never heard of these groups. Um, you know, they're more interested in the activist groups. Um, but they don't realize that even though these activist groups like Occupy, they're, they're coming from a good place. They want to help poor people, but they don't include any poor people. They, I, 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 think, I think this is partly why I wrote the book, there are, there's a huge gap, chasm between the haves and haves nots and or just middle America uh, a lot of the elites on the coast they're kind of in their own world again trying to do the right thing but they don't really know about the lives and what's meaningful to so many people whether it's the uh, uh, poor Latino Americans or it's uh, people in Appalachia or 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 you know struggling Americans anywhere
0: For those who have never seen this, this is a little clip of you and your husband back in 2014 when you wrote a book together. One of the most striking findings we came upon in our whole research was that Asian-Americans who uh, are doing so well academically today, Asian-American students, for example, get uh, SAT scores 140 points higher on average than the rest of the country. Not a stereotype, a fact, but when researchers dug closer they found that third generation Asian Americans, that there was no difference in their academic performance between them and the rest of the country. Can you give us some more on that?
1: Yes. So I don't know why this is so controversial. I mean, there's so much political correctness now that if you ever say, look, these people, you know, if they change their behavior, if they learn to study this way, or they kind of learn from other groups that are actually rising. You know, we hear about the death of upward mobility all the time, and it is true. There are parts of the economy that are just completely stagnant. But the truth is, if you break down the statistics, there are still many actually poor groups, often immigrants, from Nigeria, you know, from uh, Poland that still go from nothing, rags to riches. So we need to um, we need to restore upward mobility in this country. I think this is one of the ways that we can connect the heartland back to the coasts. Right now, it's what I describe in political tribes as we almost have two Americas who just don't speak to each other. So we can learn from the groups who are often immigrants, who have a lot of strong parental input, very good work habits, a lot of self-discipline, which I think we could all use a little more of, um, and learn why some groups are rising when others are not, transve- uh, you know convey that information, teach our schools how to do it, also, I'm also favoring in the book ways of having more geographical mobility. You know, it used to be that people from the Midwest, where you and I are from, would move to a coast, uh, study there, come back. It would be very fluid. Now the coasts are so expensive. Silicon Valley is impossible. Nobody can live there. New York City, oh, my God, you have to be a, a multimillionaire, and education has gotten so expensive that it's no longer that channel of mobility um, that it was for so many years in this country. And that's what I discuss near the end of the book, these solutions, what we need to do to get back the America. It's not scapegoating minorities. It's not demonizing the people in the other half of the political spectrum. It's really not. It's We only do that because it's easiest to do that, and it feels good to have an enemy. I show all these um, studies in the book that humans are tribal. We actually, our brains get activated and we feel pleasure when we target the the, the other enemy and we see them suffering. We actually feel good, but we can overcome this. Studies show that if we make an effort, it's not our default mode. Our default mode is tribalism. But if we make an effort, we can overcome these primal tribal instincts and come together. And that's actually was always what the American experiment was. It was to be something bigger than our small individual tribes.
0: If I had been in your classroom since uh, back in 2001 or two at, at Yale, up to today, what would I notice uh, about the students?
1: Well, I would say that um, it's definitely gotten much, much more diverse ethnically. And religiously. Um, it's still just, you know, I don't even know if it's the national average. I mean, you know, there's still a lot of underrepresentation, for example, of Latino Americans. But there are so many Asian Americans. When I was in law school, I was the only Asian American. Maybe there was one other person in, out of a class of 200 people. Now, um, you know, we have many Asian Americans. And what we're actually struggling with right now is um, trying to get more economic diversity. Uh, that is, we don't have that many, uh, people from working class families. And that's, I think, part of the problem. There, there are groups that are just excluded from, uh, this higher education that is the track. I mean, J.D. Vance writes, he was an extreme exception. Almost nobody else in his community made it out of poor Kentucky, Ohio.
0: What kind of a student was he? Excellent
1: excellent. Um, Not only incredibly bright, but curious. Curious, open-minded, willing to argue, but in a nice way. He would always reach out, I remember, to uh, the people of exactly the opposite political stripe. Um, He's, you know, an open Republican, one of the few uh, at Yale Law School, and yet everybody loved him because he was willing to talk with people. What do your students think of our president? Yale Law School is not a fan of President Trump. Uh, How how do you know
0: that? I mean, how do they tell you that?
1: Well, first of all, Yale Law School is where Hillary Clinton went to school. Um, Also, like most Ivy League schools, Yale Law School is extremely progressive. And we have at Yale Law School many clinics that are actually bringing lawsuits, um, many of them incredibly important, standing up just for the rule of law. Um, You know, day in court, people can disagree about the merits but we always wanna make sure that the rule of law is in place. Um, uh, and I think they've done a magnificent job. I mean, the judiciary is such an important institution here. And, um, you know, as long as we still have our separation of powers and three branches of government, um, you might disagree with one branch or this branch at a certain time but th- again, this is part of the uh, the magic of the American Constitution.
0: Let me go over some statistics and get finally from you what you think of this. You say in the book that four hundred, there are 566 federally recognized Native American tribes in the United States. You say that from 1999 to 2008, 13 of the 783 members who had been elected you know, in, in the Congress spent only spent more than a quarter of their life in blue collar jobs. You say in fifty years, fifty nine million immigrants have arrived here in the United States. You say there are sixty five mega churches and there are twenty seven thousand street gangs. Now that's a lot of statistics, but why did you include all those in and what's the picture you're trying to paint?
1: America's changing and we have a number of important divides that we need to work on. Uh, it doesn't mean that we can't overcome them. We have first this ethnic change, this demographic change that is very seismic and we need to address it. You know, we have much more, many more immigrants than we ever have uh, coming from different parts of the world. We have tremendous inequality, which we've always had in this country, but the magic to that was we had upward mobility. So Americans have never actually really minded uh, wealthy people or capitalism, you know, unlike the countries of Europe that have had strong socialist parties. But that's always because people felt that if they worked hard and saved and just got a little lucky, they could rise or their children could rise. And we need to get back to that. If we don't, we see people moving into these movements, um, you know, mega churches where they're praying for money. I mean, that's that's the principle that if you pray hard enough, God will give you money. Now, th- there's nothing wrong with, with that. But we also don't want it to be a situation where people feel so hopeless with the system, so unable to get education, that they feel the only thing they can do is pray for money. That's not what America was about. America was always about the work ethic, um, self-responsibility, uh, and the combination of that. So I think that the big picture is a lot of the so-called elites Um, I'm not letting them off the hook either. You know, they have not only um, overlooked a lot of the most important identities outside America, leading to some of our greatest foreign policy debacles, They have also been a little bit, maybe a little bit uh, high minded, a little smug about all of the Less wealthy and less privileged people in this country making assumptions, not really understanding them, um, and not seeing what matters to them, and which is why you saw the 2016 election. That um, election swept to power a president that n- took everybody aback. All the news media, nobody called it. Um, and by the way, I, I, I was I was one of the few people not surprised by that election because you know you just have to talk to people. Uh, who are whispering, and um, and you can see what's going on. We're
0: out of time. One last question to you. If you hadn't become a law professor, what would you have done?
1: Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, you know, I'm so interested in—when um, uh, I was younger, uh, I wrote that I was going to be a diplomat, an ambassador. <laughs> I, I think I like—I'm uh, very interested in tribalism and groups because I'm from one myself— but I tend to be an optimist. Uh, I like bridging differences. So, so maybe going back to what I said, I would be when I was 16, um, yeah, maybe some sort of uh, some sort of ambassador or, or diplomat, uh, bridging differences across countries. Either that, or I don't know.
0: <laughs> the name of the book is Political Tribes: Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations. Our guest is, has been Amy Chua. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at QA.org. QA programs are also available as C SPAN podcasts.
1: If you